Good morning. So last week in Nehemiah chapter 5, uh, we saw Nehemiah embracing self-sacrifice as a way to joy. We saw self-sacrifice as the Christ-proven method for joy. And near the end of the sermon, I, uh, I touched on belief and fear. I, I said, I, I quoted A.W. Tozer, and I said that the most important thing about each one of us is what we think when we think about God. Um, and I got there because Nehemiah 5 said that uh, Nehemiah feared God. And, and so he embraced self-sacrifice because he feared God. That's, that's what Nehemiah 5 said. But I realized, I just kind of went from fear to faith, like, you know, fearing God and then what we think about God. I, I just went there real, real quick, you know. It's like teaching someone how to tie their shoe. And it's like, uh, you know, boom. It's, it's just like that. So I didn't do a very good job kind of, you know, pulling that pulling that out so we could see the connection. And, uh, and, and I felt that when I, when I got home. And then uh, uh, I, I opened my Bible in preparation this week, and I saw Nehemiah 6. It's all about attempts to frighten Nehemiah. So we're going to go back and hit rewind and try to, try to make this connection more thoroughly of fearing God and putting faith in God. Uh, and we'll see that in Nehemiah 6. So rather than start by just explaining, I, I want to start with a group exercise. Don't worry, it'll be silent. Uh, we can all participate together, but uh, in silence, uh, on the screen there are going to be some questions. And I want you to answer these honestly. Like, uh, you know, you might have a Sunday morning answer, and you might have a Tuesday night and a Wednesday morning answer that's different than your Sunday morning answer. So Look at these questions and just be really honest about uh, the, the polls on your heart. So here's the two questions. And I'm going to give you some time and some space to just process these. What do you long for? That's question number one. And question number two is what are you afraid of? So just be honest with yourself and with God and I'll give you a moment to reflect So here, here's some 
potential answers. What do you long for? Long for relationship? Do you long for success? Do you long for healing? And what are you afraid of? Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe you're afraid of failure. Maybe you're afraid of hurt or past hurts. When I reflected on those questions this week, I saw that my own answers were opposite of each other. What I long for is what I desire. What I'm afraid of is what I don't desire to transpire. And I realized that faith, faith is being sure of what you hope for. Faith is being certain of what you don't see. It's what you long for. And you move towards whatever you most long for. Fear is expecting something undesirable to happen. And so you tend to move away from undesired things. Even though they haven't yet come, you move away from them in any way that you can. So fear and faith, faith and fear, they are being exercised by everyone, everywhere. Doesn't matter if you're an atheist, a Baptist, a Pentecostal. Doesn't matter if you don't affiliate with any organized religion. Faith and fear are being exercised in your life every moment, every day. Because it's only logical that what you desire most you would move towards. And what you don't desire to have happen, you move away from. And so fear and faith are being practiced. And that's not a bad thing. We, it's not inherently a good thing. It's only as good or bad as whatever you put your faith in or whatever you put your fear in. So with that in mind, let's continue the story of Nehemiah, who uh, I just want to remind you, he, he was a real man, lived in real time and space, had real hopes and real fears just like we do. And we're going to see in this passage that there were three attempts that his enemies uh, acted on, that three attempts that, he, that they tried to get him to act on fear. So uh, the first section, we see this attempt to get him to fear the wrong thing, and, and they, they were using persistent lies. So Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1, he writes, now, when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, these are the enemies that have been opposing Nehemiah and the work, the whole, the whole book long. When it was reported to them and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although I hadn't set up the doors and the gates yet. So the, the wall was basically done, but the doors weren't finished. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, come, let's meet together in the plain of Ono. And, and they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? But they kept sending messages four times in this manner. And Nehemiah said, I answered them the same way every time. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me a fifth time, this time with a letter in hand. And the letter said this, it's reported among the nations, and even Geshem says this is true, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. That's why you built this wall. Are, and you're going to be their king, according to these reports. So you've appointed prophets, these reports say, to proclaim in Jerusalem 
about yourself. A, a king is in Judah. And so now these reports are going to be reported back to the king. And so let's, let's come and take counsel together. And, and Nehemiah replied by saying, such things as you're saying, they haven't been done, but you're inventing them in your own mind. Because all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands, is what Nehemiah prayed. So, so this is the first attempt that Nehemiah's enemies used to try to get him to fear. Each of these sections, it ends, or near the end, it says, but they did this to frighten me. They did this to frighten us. They did this to frighten me. So the, this, this first one is they're, they're using persistence. Like, send you a letter. Send you a message. Send you another message five times. And they're trying to get Nehemiah to act out of the fear of the messages that they're sending. And then the second attempt is in verses 10 to 14. It says, and this is an attempt of pretense. They're trying to get Nehemiah to act in fear because uh, they, hired, they hired someone that Nehemiah wouldn't expect to tell them a lie. Uh, so Nehemiah entered the house of Shemaiah, who he was a shut-in. He couldn't get out. And, 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 and Shemaiah, the shut-in, said, uh, Nehemiah, uh, thanks for coming to visit me. Let's go to the house of God. Let's go to the temple and let's close the doors there because, let, let, here, here's the reason for their field trip, they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you at night. That's what Shemaiah said. But Nehemiah's response is, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I won't go in. And then, verse 12, I perceived that surely God had not sent Shemaiah with this message, but he uttered this against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired, so they, they paid this guy to give Nehemiah the false message so that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin so that they might have an evil report uh, that they could come and bring against me. And then he prays again, remember, oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works, and also Nodiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. So, frighten me. So, so they're using pretense. They're, they're, they're telling a guy that Nehemiah trusted enough to go and meet with, uh, hey, s send, s send him here so that we can kill him. <laughs> Uh, so that we can harm him, so that, so that we have a reproach to bring against him. So, so the first attempt to get him to do the wrong thing was just persistence, and the second attempt was pretense. And this third attempt in verses 15 to 19, um, it, 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 it's personal. And I think all of them were personal, but this one just highlights the personal nature of their attempts to get Nehemiah to fear. So, this is the end of chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. It says, The wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about it and the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Also in those days, many letters, here, here's the, the, the threat, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, the enemy. So, Important people uh, among Ju uh, um, in Judah where Nehemiah was. And, and Tobiah's letters came to them. They, they were pen pals with the enemy. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, many people in Judah had this connection to the enemy, Tobiah, because he was the son-in-law of an important Jew. And his son had married the daughter of an important Jew. Moreover, they were speaking, like so the, 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 the nobles of Judah were speaking about Tobiah's good deeds in the presence of Nehemiah. He's not that bad of a guy, right? And then they reported back to Tobiah, uh, Nehemiah's words. And then Tobiah sent letters. Here, here's our key word again. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. So Tobiah was well-connected. Family both above him and family below him uh, was well-connected in with Jewish society. And he was using his personal connections as a way to undermine Nehemiah's leadership. And so each of these attempts were personal, each of them was filled with pretense or deception, and each of them was persistent. Like, for example, in this last attempt, he sent multiple letters, multiple letters, uh, both to Tobiah and to the nobles. And I, as I reflected on this passage, I was reminded that our enemy, the devil, will also come in pretense. He comes with lies. He comes with things that aren't true. And it's a personal attack with persistence to frighten you. He wants you to fear anyone or anything other than God. He wants us to be afraid of the future. He wants us to be anxious about the things we can't control, about how other people view us. He wants us to be afraid of being known, like really personally known for who we are. And Nehemiah he was resilient. He didn't give way to all these fears because, like we saw in chapter 5, he feared God. And so these invitations in chapter 6 to fear men didn't really phase him. I mean, I think it affected him emotionally. He was a man. <laughs> but these are faulty fears. They were, they were going to mislead Nehemiah. They were going to track him away from faithfulness to God. And so all these multiple requests... In, in the first attempt that we saw, he just flicked him away. Like, no, I'm not coming down to meet you. I'm still not coming down to meet you. Still not coming down to meet you. That's persistence. Because he feared God, not man. And then when Shemaiah the shut-in said, hey, they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you at night. Flee to the temple. He said, I'm not afraid of them killing me. If they kill me, I'm not going to die running away in fear. Not fear of them. I fear God. And even after the wall was finished and after the, the nations lost their confidence, Tobiah sending these letters trying to get under Nehemiah's skin and under his leadership of the people. And we have no indication that Nehemiah is uh, afraid of this. I'm sure he doesn't like it, but he's not afraid of what Tobiah was trying to do. And it was because he feared God and not men. He saw that these attempts to frighten him were, were detracting, that they would have detracted from his faithfulness to God. So fear is not always bad. I think having a right fear is good. And if you think that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, uh, I'd say that doesn't line up with experience. I think we're all fearing something because we're all wanting something and wanting to avoid something it just doesn't line up with 
with real-world experience. The only thing, so when it comes to fearing God, the, the only reason we'd expect something undesirable from God is because of our sin. It's not, fearing God doesn't mean that God is undesirable. It's the punishment from God that we deserve. It's the power of sin that we can't overcome on our own. That's what's undesirable to us. So when sin becomes undesirable, then, then that's something that we want to move away from. We, we see it coming, we see the temptation coming, and we want to move away from it. So Proverbs 1 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It means when we focus on the right fear, the bigger fear, then the little fears, like what do people think of me? Or what if I'm not, what if I fail at this? The little fears, we can flick them away. We can be resilient like Nehemiah was. He recognized they're trying to frighten me and he wasn't afraid because he already decided who he feared. And so, do you know how a magnet works? I know there's a lot of engineers that know a lot more about me than about how a magnet works. And uh, here's what I know, I'll tell you. A magnet works with a positive and a negative attracting to one another, right? And I think that biblically, fear and faith work that way. Fear is the negative component of faith, and faith is the positive component where we want something, we desire something. And the positive and negative, they, they attract you somewhere. They, they bring it together. It's a, it's a powerful force. And, and as you think about those questions, what you fear, what, what you desire and what you don't desire, they're, they're pulling you somewhere. Your fear and your faith, it's pulling you somewhere. And it can be pulling you in a good direction, a helpful direction towards, towards God, towards Christ-likeness. But it just depends on what you fear and what you believe. So fearing God biblically, it leads to faith in God, and faith in the Lord leads to fear of the Lord. As one grows, the other does too, because it's just a descriptor of the same relationship. And at this point, you might be thinking, I don't know, Ben. There's not a lot of Jesus in this message. I think Jesus wasn't really into this fear God stuff. Uh, he was more about loving God, loving your neighbor. Uh, I think Jesus did understand the relationship of fear and faith, and he was for it. In fact, he says in Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more to do that they can do. So don't fear men. But then in verse 5 of Luke 12, Jesus says, I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I think Jesus is pretty clear. We're still called to fear God. And then he goes on in verse 6. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you're of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus' teaching is fear God and trust God. And you might wonder, well, what are we to make of Jesus saying fear him? And then he ends with fear not. And here's what I think we're to make of it. We don't fear regarding how God looks at us. We fear that we get to look at God. As a guilty sinner, and all of us are, we've all fallen short of perfection. 
We don't fear how God looks at us, but we do fear as a right response, a reverent response, that we get to look at a holy God. And so what this means is that we don't just come to God in faith that he will fulfill our deepest wishes and desires, but we also come to him in fear that knowing if we ignore him, we just might chase the wrong dreams. And that, that should make us shudder in fear of trusting ourselves. So even though faith and fear are opposites, they really do work together to bring us to God. So all those hopes and fears that you thought of at the start, God wants to meet you there. He wants to transform you. He wants to transform me in the midst of what we want and in the midst of what we want to avoid. Success and failure, relationship and loneliness, they all exist for him. All these, all these pulls on our heart. He wants to refine us. He wants to change us. And at this point, you might be thinking, gosh, I wish I had someone to like help me navigate <laughs> these heart issues, to become resilient like Nehemiah, flicking away the constant temptation to fear the wrong thing, to be misled by these faulty fears. How can I live this way? Like increasingly live this way? Well, we do have someone who teaches us. Someone who modeled this life of fearing God and trusting God. Isaiah 11 talks about Jesus when, when Isaiah writes, a shoot is going to come up out of the stump of Jesse, which means from the line of Jesse, a shoot is going to come up and from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Jesus is the branch that bears fruit that Isaiah is talking about. And it says in verse two, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might. And then get this, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And it says about Jesus that he will delight in the fear of the Lord. I think that verse is one worth reflecting on, that Jesus delights in the fear of the Lord. It's not a dreadful thing to fear God. It's a delightful thing, and it leads us to delight. And Jesus, the way he lived a perfect life is moment by moment he chose to believe the truth, and he feared believing the lies, even to the point of dying on a cross. And, and, and by so doing, he destroyed the devil who held in slavery, us, by our fear of death. He destroyed our fear of death, that the devil was holding over us. And so now we get to live in freedom, the freedom of a resurrected king. And this, this doesn't mean that we don't fear or that we won't fear, believe me. We, we, we're, we're tempted to fear the wrong things all the time, but it means that under Christ's leadership, if you're a Christian, you can learn to increasingly fear the right things. We can, in fact, learn to delight in the fear of the Lord. That's the spirit that we've been given. So, Nehemiah is a story of brokenness being restored together. And so, what, what was the brokenness in Nehemiah 6? 
was the brokenness of fear. But it's also the wall. They finally finished the wall. You might have noticed that in our text. And I, and I want to point out, Nehemiah, he said it took 52 days to finish the wall. He was there for 12 years as a governor. That's 1% of his whole time leading the people in Jerusalem. So the wall was a big deal, but it was 1%. And I say that just to remind us, Nehemiah's vision for restoring brokenness in Jerusalem, it was a lot bigger than the wall. And our vision has to be bigger than the wall in front of us too. Like the wall being the immediate thing that's next. Like changing your kid's diaper, vacuuming the floor, going to work, raising your kids. Your vision has to be bigger than that next task. I'm not saying that the next, that next task doesn't matter. It does matter. But it doesn't matter most. What matters most is the same now as it was back in Nehemiah's day. Loving God, loving people. And as we push towards that end, as we push towards making disciples who love God and love people, brokenness will be restored. And I've said this before, but I think it's worth saying again. God believes in you. He's entrusted with you his ministry. It's not just like pastors and missionaries to whom God has entrusted the ministry of, of his son being carried out today, but it, it's his church. It's his people. So just embrace God's vision for your life because it's so much bigger than having a successful career. And God's not opposed to you having a successful career. It's so much bigger than raising your kids. And God's calling you to raise your kids if he's given them to you. But our vision has got to be greater than finishing the wall. That was 1% of Nehemiah's time. Keeping that vision, keeping that perspective is really hard because we all, we all leak perspective. So practically, how can we keep the right vision? How can we cultivate a healthy fear of living out of the wrong vision, fearing the wrong things. I, I read a resiliency expert this week, secular, who said there are three things that best predict resiliency. And remember, resiliency is, you know, we have these wrong visions, these temptations to, to pull us off track, and Nehemiah just flicked them away. That's resiliency. Flicked them away, stay on track, stay on mission. And here's the three things that the resiliency expert said best predict people who can stay on track. Not, perf not perfectly, but they stay in the right direction. Here's one. You have a positive relationship. You have deep friendship. That's one. You belong to a group. That's two. Three, you have a clear life purpose. And the, the, the resiliency expert said, if you say yes to all three, you're likely to be a highly resilient person. If you say no to even one, or of course more, you're not going to be as resilient. You're not as likely to deal well with troubles, with hardship. And I just looked at that and I was like, yeah, that's a really biblical list. Because God has given us a purpose to live for. Like I said, loving God and loving people that's what always has and always will matter most. So tying that back into fear, we need to be afraid as other things spring up in our hearts 
that we'd love more than God or more than people. A group that you belong to is important, but we need to be afraid. So what that means is we need to be afraid of not belonging. We need to be afraid for other people of not belonging. When other people don't belong, we're afraid for them because we love them. <laughs> we know that's not, what, that's not what best for them. And then having positive, meaningful friendships, we need to be afraid of belonging to a group but not really being known personally, deeply. So fear and faith, they, they work together. God, God calls us to fear him because he loves us. Fearing God doesn't lead to dread. It actually leads to peace. And all other fears, all these faulty fears that want to mislead you, they're the ones that lead to distress. So let's pray. And God, we just want to start by thanking you that we don't have to fear regarding how you look at us. While we were still sinners, while we were your enemies, you sent yourself in Christ to die for us. And so we want to fear you. We want to grow in our fear of you as a response to looking at this incredible, holy God as a response to looking at you, God. And we acknowledge that fear is powerful. And so teach us to fear you. Teach us the beginning of wisdom. This is not something that we're called to do alone. We might all have different desires or fears, but we're called to train together to grow in healthy fear and holy fear. Continue talking to God as the worship team comes up.